BridgeBank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to those committed to leveraging innovation to make the world a better place. BridgeBank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. BridgeBank. Be bold. Venture wisely. Hi there. I'm Randa Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. This is the California Report. Good morning. I'm Saul Gonzalez in Los Angeles. The fight continues this morning to save some of the world's oldest and biggest trees from wildfires. Some 800 firefighters are battling the KNP complex fire, which has burned over 21,000 acres and threatens giant sequoias in Sequoia National Park east of Fresno. Crews have been working to protect some of the trees by wrapping their bases in fire-resistant aluminum foil and clearing ground foliage around them. That includes the famed General Sherman Sequoia, a California icon. It's 275 feet tall and at least 2,300 years old and is considered the largest tree by volume in the world. As of this morning, the General Sherman appears safe. Meanwhile, because of dry conditions and forecast high winds of up to 40 miles per hour, the National Weather Service has issued a red flag warning for a vast swath of Northern California. The warning is expected to remain in effect until 8 p.m. this evening. A red flag warning means conditions exist to create a critical fire danger. People are advised to be especially aware of their behavior and to extinguish all outdoor fires over concerns about flying sparks and embers. And Pacific Gas and Electric says it's possible that electricity continued to flow through a set of power lines for several hours after a tree fell into them and ignited the Dixie fire. That according to court filings from the company. KQED's Alex Emsley reports. The utility says since the Dixie fire started July 13th, it's boosted the sensitivity of safety equipment on similar power lines. Had that been done earlier, the fire may have been prevented but that also makes power outages more common. The company also admits an employee considered remotely cutting power to the line early in the morning, but decided against it. Instead, it took about nine hours for a worker to get to a set of blown fuses and discover the fire that had likely just ignited. The fire has now burned for over two months, grown to nearly a million acres, and destroyed over a thousand homes and other buildings. For the California Report, I'm Alex Hemsley. Los Angeles County health officials have added in-home care workers to the list of high-risk health jobs that must get COVID-19 vaccines by the end of this month. The move has emboldened advocacy groups who are pushing to make it statewide. KPCC health reporter Jackie Fortier has the details. These aides help people with developmental disabilities eat, bathe, and use the bathroom. Because they are so physically close, there's a high risk of COVID transmission from an unvaccinated person. We really hope that the state of California looks at LA County as a model. 
Judy Mark is president of Disability Voices United, an advocacy group. She says the 200,000 Californians with developmental disabilities outside of L.A. County should also be protected. We know there are other counties in the state that are not going to be as forward thinking. And so we need the state now to act to protect our most vulnerable. Health workers in California hospitals, nursing homes, and adult daycare centers must be vaccinated or file a medical or religious exemption, but so far the state hasn't included in-home health aides, even though they do the same intimate work. For the California Report, I'm Jackie Fortier in Los Angeles. And staying in L.A. County, health officials are offering school districts the option of allowing unvaccinated students who have come in contact with someone who's tested positive for COVID-19 to continue with in-person classroom instruction. Here's Public Health Director Barbara Ferrer. Those who qualify for modified quarantine include close contacts whose exposure took place at school or at a school-supervised activity when both the close contact and the case were masked during the entire exposure period, and the close contacts are not part of a defined outbreak. Now, any exposed students must remain asymptomatic throughout the duration of the modified quarantine period and must remain at home other than when they take part in classroom instruction. If the student tests negative five days after the exposure, the quarantine period will end after a week. The new guidance comes as coronavirus cases have declined by 40% over the last three weeks across all pediatric age groups in Los Angeles County. Do you love learning about the San Francisco Bay Area? It's history, it's people, it's unique blend of cultures? Then you should check out The Bay Curious Book. I'm Katrina Schwartz, editor and producer on The Bay Curious Podcast, and I'm here to let you know that for the month of May, we've worked out a sweet deal for KQED podcast listeners. Right now, you can get The Bay Curious ebook for $1.99. That's right, $1.99. Just search for Bay Curious wherever you get your ebooks or find a link in our show notes. This offer does expire at the end of the month, though, so you'll want to act on it fast. Happy reading! Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest, and I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio. It was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. Labor unions made a massive effort to help Governor Gavin Newsom beat the recall and stay in office. Now, as KQED's KDO reports, unions are expecting Newsom to show up for them. Labor-sponsored get-out-the-vote campaigns rallied tens of thousands of volunteers to make phone calls, send texts, and knock on doors throughout the state. 
The California Labor Federation's Steve Smith says it was one of the largest such efforts in the state's history, and he says unions now expect to see their hard work pay off. We've got a lot of work to do on COVID protections, on restoring our economy, on tackling income inequality, and we want to engage the governor to be a partner with us in all of those things. And we expect big things to happen over the course of the next several years on those issues and others. But Smith says labor's primary motivation was preventing a Republican from winning the governor's office and undoing worker protections already in place. Max Arias with labor group SEIU agrees. He says the defeat of the recall was a huge victory for working people, one they hope to build on. Thousands and thousands of volunteers and members, they didn't turn out because they have a specific expectation of the governor. They turned out because that's exactly how we build power. And we expect and hope that the governor will continue to work in partnership with working people. SCIU spent $6 million of its own money fighting the recall. The union says it was focused on turning out communities of color. For the California Report, I'm Katie Orr in Sacramento. A statewide bill that aims to diversify California's arts and culture workforce and jobs that pay a living wage has landed on the governor's desk after winning near unanimous support in the Assembly and Senate. The California Creative Workforce Act is a first of its kind in the country, as KQED's Chloe Veltman reports. California's creative sector contributes well over $200 billion or a quarter of the country's entire creative economy. But the devastating impact of COVID-19 on the cultural industries has made this new legislation a matter of urgency, says State Senator Susan Rubio, who represents the San Gabriel Valley and co-authored the bill. To encourage people that want to go into the creative arts to, to explore the opportunity, but also be able to support those artists that are currently unemployed and provide a pathway to sustainable jobs. Usha Srinivasan is the founder and CEO of Mosaic America, a small community arts nonprofit in Silicon Valley that relies mostly on volunteers. She welcomes the legislation, which would set up grant programs that creative sector employers like Mosaic could use to hire people. So, what that potentially could do is help organizations like ours that would love to have people that we are able to pay and we can train. But the bill doesn't say how the proposed grants will be funded. That's one of Patricia Bates's issues with it. The San Diego and Orange County State Senator sent KQED a written statement saying, quote, it does not specifically address who is eligible for the program, where the money will come from, and how that money will exactly be used. Susan Rubio agrees the funding is a concern. But I think before the funding comes, we need to establish the program. Rubio says if the governor signs the bill into law, the state's Arts Council and Workforce Development Board will create program guidelines, and only then will advocates push for funding from the state budget. For The California Report, I'm Chloe Veltzman. Let's turn to the environment. Think waste and recycling, and I bet aluminum, plastic, and cardboard come to mind. But you should also think food. That's because food waste is a colossal problem, with California businesses and consumers tossing out nearly 6 million tons of food a year. And when all that food gets trucked and dumped into landfills, it turns into methane, a greenhouse gas dozens of times more damaging to our climate than carbon dioxide. 
So to both help save the planet and feed more people, the state of California, along with hunger relief groups, are trying to find better ways to rescue and recycle food, often perfectly edible food, before it's tossed into the trash. To learn more, one early morning, I visited a big industrial building south of downtown LA, where forklifts were unloading pallets of pretty fantastic looking fruits and vegetables from truck after truck that pulled in. What you're seeing is a 10,000 square foot warehouse, which is pretty much literally the pit stop for hundreds of thousands of pounds of fresh produce that we're recovering every single day. That's Rick Namias, the founder of Food Forward. It's a nonprofit that accepts excess fruits and vegetables from food wholesalers and farmers who frequently have way too much produce to ever sell it for a profit. Food Forward then repackages the food and donates it to local hunger relief groups. If this wasn't done, perfectly good food would end up in landfills and turn into methane. It's shameful, it's wrong, and we are existing to take what they call that shrink, that stuff they can't sell, or that would flood the market and bring the prices down, getting it to where it's needed. I see where it's needed a few miles north of the Food Forward Warehouse at a weekly food distribution event for residents of LA's Pico Union District. Produce that would have been thrown out in the past is bagged by volunteers in a parking lot and then given out to residents of this working class and largely immigrant neighborhood whose food insecurity has been made worse by COVID. Today we have a medley of things like asparagus, cherries, oranges, plums, bell peppers. That's Erica Nieves, a coordinator for Seeds of Hope, the nonprofit that manages the program. We bag about a thousand bags of fruits and vegetables every Friday. And really what we like to do is we like to give families that come by whatever it is that they need, as much as they need. For us, it's a, it's a blessing not letting food go to waste. Food recycling in California got a big boost in 2016 when a state law went into effect requiring businesses to start reducing their organic refuse. And next year, California will take its war on food waste to a new place, your home. Starting in January, Californians will be required to recycle their residential organic waste, including food scraps. Instead of tossing old or unused produce into the garbage, food will have to be put in organic waste disposal bins provided by local governments. The food waste will then go to recycling centers where it's supposed to be turned into either usable compost or biofuels. We're looking for individual Californians to think about their relationship with their food. That's Rachel Wagner, the director of Cal Recycle, California's recycling department. She says that the state is to effectively fight climate change. Food recycling must become part of every Californian's daily life. Rather than throw that banana peel in the garbage can where it's going to break down to methane in a landfill, throw it in your compost pile or in your yard waste bin. And this is the single easiest thing that we can do as Californians to impact climate change. In all, the state of California hopes to slash the amount of organic waste going to landfills, including food, by 75% by the end of 2025. And that is the California Report for today, Monday, September 20th. We're a production of KQED Public Radio. I'm Saul Gonzalez. Thanks so much for listening and talk tomorrow. 
Support for the California Report comes from Water Heaters Only, specializing in the repair and replacement of water heaters since 1968. Licensed and insured, open 24 hours a day every day. Learn more at waterheatersonly.com. Eric and Wendy Schmidt whose philanthropy harnesses the power of people and science to create innovative solutions for a healthy environment, just societies, and opportunities for human achievement, and Stanford Medicine, protecting your health and providing dependable care with safe in-person appointments and video visits. StanfordHealthCare.org slash AdaptingCare. Hi, I'm Sasha Koka, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse, golden state. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as, like, the place to be California. The land of milk and honey, that's where you go to Sunshine State, but we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. 